This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening. This is C.P. Smith, one of your co-hosts this evening for tonight's Dialectica show. My father, David Smith, and I will present an update and analysis of health care reform efforts. As we speak at this hour, uh, there is an ongoing debate across the nation on health care reform, but our focus is naturally on Washington, D.C., as the Senate picks up the health care debate on a bill submitted by Senator Reid uh, just within the last couple of days. Although the uh, House has passed a comprehensive health care reform bill, one which President Obama indicates meets his approval, health care reform in the Senate, and in particular the form that that health care reform will take, is far from certain. Any analysis of the health care debate may be most productive if we compare a few provisions between the House bill and, that has passed and the Senate bill that is under debate, and we'll discuss that this evening. And we'll also pick up on what the American public considers to be a public option, which is one of the two major topics that are being discussed with regards to health care reform. I'd also like to uh, just kind of open up with a few little facts about the health care reform bill as it stands. It's a 2,074-page bill, and it's estimated by the Congressional Budget Office to cost nearly $1 trillion, but it is legislation that is designed to extend health care to millions of Americans who do not have health care, as well as abolish certain industry, insurance industry practices, such as denying uh, prior conditions or pre-existing conditions, as is often referred to, and also cut back on the rise of expenses related to health care, spending overall. If health care reform goes through in a form that is similar to the one passed by the House, up to 94% of the population will be covered by health insurance, uh, meeting one of the major goals outlined by President Obama when he uh, ran for office. Um, With that, I think we'll shift to uh, essentially an outlining of the difference between the Uh, Senate and House bill. And with that, I'll turn it over to my father. Well, thank you, Chris, for uh, inviting me in. Uh, The issue that's so important to our lives is just as important in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, as it is here in Austin, Texas. The U.S. House and uh, Senate are are debating and molding health care legislation that will personally impact our country's citizens for the rest of our lives. In fact, for coming generations, the health care legislation will economically impact citizens, the business community, large and small, and government. It may well determine the availability, the cost, and quality of health care services. In fact, it uh, will probably even uh, determine who will receive health care service and who does not. 
You know, it's a fair to say that the attention to health care reform through legislation will impact this country's health, wealth, and economy perhaps greater than any other legislation, save you know, civil rights, since the 1930s. Imagine for a moment arguably the most monumentous legislative undertaking since the Great Depression. Yet in the background of the many complex issues, political agenda and social ideology, these impact how the public is informed as to how their lives will be affected. I think it's fair to say that a senator or any legislator that's friendly to reform will probably use his best efforts to communicate uh, details of the uh, bill. On the other hand, if for ideology reasons uh, he or she is not following it, it could very well be the period at the end of the sentence. The uh, engaged public really agrees that some kind of change is needed, but uh, I don't think everybody's entirely in the in agreement and what is needed. You know, young individuals and families with children have much different concerns than those of, say, for example, those folks over 60. Young and old do agree that people should not have to go from a hospital, for example, right straight to a bankruptcy court. I think that uh, one of the issues that uh, has been plaguing some of this discussion about health care reform is that people are taking pretty hard and fast positions. It looks like some of the debate, uh, the two major issues that are focusing uh, the debate revolve around the public option, which we'll discuss some more, but also abortion. And as long as those issues are driving the agenda, it's very difficult to actually make any headway in discussing, outlining, and debating the different alternatives, the costs, and the impact it'll have on a vast majority of the nation. And I think that uh, it seems that the debate, well, I mean, is really a misnomer because they're not so much having a discussion of ideas and a changing of ideas as much as expressing platitudes and positions and speaking to either their base um, or to their constituents. And as a result, I think what we lose in those public debates or those uh, uh, positions that they outline on the floor of the Senate is an actual intelligent discussion of the merits of the program. And therefore, we left with and what I mean we, citizens are left with a discussion that happens behind closed doors that is privileged access to those discussions, and only a few people actually get to participate in, in, uh, in making those decisions that actually affect all 300 million within the nation. I was wondering if you might be able to just because there is so much confusion about some of these issues, um, if we could just talk a little bit about what the public option is. If you could, if you could talk maybe in, and uh, let us know what, what a government single payer and a first dollar program means. 
I think that that would at least help uh, help uh, inform some of the debate that's out there. Well, that, that's uh, very interesting. I'm uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, behind uh, closed door uh, uh, debates because uh, you kind of wonder when you're dealing with. Uh, at this point, perhaps uh, 3,000 pages or more, who is actually writing the bill and who's actually reading it. Some of the discussions around the public option, uh, which uh, some people can just simply say yes or no without really understanding uh, uh, what's really meant. Public option is the general consensus is a program that... Uh, competes with the uh, private insurance industry and would include, for example, single payer. And in some cases, I, ideally, uh, you know, payment for first dollar and, me, you know, there'd be no co-pays as presently exist in many private uh, funds. The liberals would like to uh, keep this open because uh, they really don't trust the insurance industry. Conservatives, on the other hand, uh, claim that, uh, again, they're concerned about too much uh, government intrusion. Uh, also, at some point, it's getting a little bit uh, uh, tied up uh, in, uh, in details. Uh, some senators would like to see uh, states have the ability of opting out of a program like that. Others would like to make it so states can opt in. So uh, it's uh, it's still uh, quite a, a murky area right now. So I'd like to kind of just discuss what are some of the differences between the House bill and the Senate bill that's under provision. Uh, we've uh, looked at some of the recent comments and uh, blogs and outlines that have essentially provided some of this information. And, uh, and if we can just go ahead and uh, talk about some of the differences. Sure. Well, uh, many of the issues are in, uh, first of all, where the money will come from. And uh, obviously... Even in your home budget, sometimes you have to give up something to purchase something else. The Senate bill would uh, increase Medicare payroll tax by about, uh, you know, 5% for individuals with incomes over $200,000. Uh, uh, Liberal Democrats would probably be happy not to have any uh, tax increases uh, for anyone with over an uh, income of, say, like uh, $8,500. So uh, some of, uh, some of the uh, Democratic ideas are to uh, tax more heavily those who make, for example, $750,000. And then also uh, tax companies uh, based on the number of employees. There would be smaller fees for smaller companies. 
I mean, it can be specific, like uh, uh, firms that uh, have salary levels between five hundred and uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for their total uh, workforce. There are some similarities between the programs, uh, between the Senate bill and the House bill. One of the similarities is that uh, both bills set requirements of what constitutes minimum adequate coverage. Um, they're designed to essentially prevent any kind of uh, employer saying that they're offering insurance while actually not, while pushing either the cost onto the employees or not meeting a suitable uh, standard to actually uh, cover their insurance. I don't know how well those uh, those uh, requirements will go. A uh, good example that I, that comes to mind readily is the uh, ma mandatory auto insurance in Texas, for example. Uh, although provided for a different service, a lot of the insurance companies do provide uh, life insurance and auto insurance. Essentially, the coverage required by law is so low that it actually doesn't really cover uh, the cost of an accident uh, to include even just a property damage, much less any kind of medical-related uh, injuries. So, I mean, if the House and the Senate bill, although similar in that regard, if they're not uh, realistic in setting a standard that actually translates to real coverage, a lot of firms will still be able to claim that they have medical insurance for their employees while actually not providing any substantive coverage. In fact, that's one concern, Chris, that uh, companies that, uh, especially small companies that presently offer insurance uh, may choose simply to say, well, we're not going to provide insurance anymore. And if they're not providing any insurance, um, then the question is, who is picking up that cost? And as it stands, these bills are both looking at the government potentially picking up those charges through a public option course, the details of what constitutes a public option is up for debate. Uh, former Secretary of Health and Human Services Robert Reich has commented that the public option as outlined in the Senate and House bill essentially has been so whittled down and negotiated down that in substance it does not really translate to a comprehensive public option that will provide all Americans with medical insurance. At the same time, there's uh, uh, some efforts to uh, look at, you know, what what is being uh, paid for, and also possibly even uh, assigning those, pay, those that type of payment uh, based on age, income or severity of illness, uh, getting rid of uh, pre-existing conditions, of course, would be important. But it's also, as you've heard recently, there's been some suggestions to uh, curtail, for example, certain uh, uh, screening examinations. And both bills do uh, ensure, or both bills are requiring that insurers are not going to be allowed to reject applicants for prior existing conditions. However, the dates that these kick in are not until 2013 and 2014, which of course uh, is uh, a convenient time frame given the elections that would be scheduled during that time frame. Um, 
these, the House bill does create a provision for what's called a high-risk pool, um, and that would start immediately for those that have pre-existing conditions or who have not, who do not have coverage from other places. But I, but the Senate has yet to incorporate a feature like that, which, of course, uh, the mechanism of what form actually gets passed out of the Senate will have to be reconciled with the House form. So, of course, those issues, if they're not in both bills, uh, will be up for negotiation and could potentially not show up in the final bill. You know, it's uh, interesting at the uh, same time when we uh, we talk uh, about this that uh, what, what do uh, people on the street really think about this? I mean, what is their opinion? Do they really care? You may run across people in your everyday life that uh, will give more of the, the huh response. They're just not bothered because it appears to be too complicated. But as we mentioned before, this could be the most uh, monumentous legislation since, uh, you know, the New Deal. So what I, probably, Oh, I'm sorry. Cut that's you. okay. I was just going to wonder why. So do we have anything that could actually uh, indicate whether people care about the public option? I mean, obviously the media reports a lot on those discussions. And is there anything that uh, would uh, give us some information as to whether, you know, the, uh, the American populace as a whole cares about the public option? Again, I, I, we almost have to rely on the feedback from the various media polls some indicate uh, that you know young young people don't want to be uh, left out, and obviously young families are concerned about protection for themselves. Uh, younger people who, uh, at this point, are most likely to be laid off from jobs due to seniority, uh, are very concerned about continuing health care. On the other hand, if you uh, ask uh, folks with uh, gray hair, their needs are different, and they're probably very protective of even the existing Medicare. So uh, asking the kind of question and to whom tremendously affects the response that you get. So, for example, the you know people that would be considered senior citizens generally don't want any effect or impact that is associated with any change of Medicare benefits. But again, if you start including a choice option, that seems to ring with a lot, ring true with a lot of Americans. Uh, in other words, if, if you talk about freedom and freedom of choice and the ability to choose a plan, then uh, any kind of question with that framing tends to score much higher than another option that might use the language, um, do you believe that the government should provide a medical insurance or a medical plan? That's right. A good example is the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation uh, uh, found, and again, this gets back to how the question is asked. If uh, they were asked if uh, a public option would give unfair advantage over private insurance companies, uh, support eroded. But it soars if respondents are told that the plan would be limited mainly to those without insurance. So there's been a lot of different surveys out there. Uh, what are some other surveys that we can actually uh, uh, look at uh, that might give us a clue about uh, what, uh, people, what people think about uh, the public option? 
again, if uh, there was, I'm, I'm uh, thinking of one uh, poll, I, I, it's not off the top of my head, but when asked if uh, how they view the uh, effort, 51% disapproved of any change, but 35% approve, again, because people want change. I don't think they can really articulate very well what that change is. For example, in a 60 Minutes Vanity Fair poll, when asked if someone would be able to explain what the public option is to another person, two-thirds of the respondents indicated that they could not, with the remainder indicating that they could explain. So that means that there's a tremendous deficit of knowledge about what the public option is. And on top of that, a lot of the answers for whether there's support for a public option or not seem to be based on how the question is phrased. So now we have to depend on our representatives to actually communicate and articulate what uh, a public option is. Now, is there anything that you've seen or that we uh, can refer to that indicates how well our representatives or their interest in actually uh, communicating about what the public option is? I, I can... Uh speak with uh, some observation on in Wisconsin where uh, we have one senator who is very very vocal and meets uh, goes to a lot of uh, town hall meetings and we have one who same party uh, just does not seem to get uh, too involved with the uh, public so we have Senator Feingold, who's obviously a real leader within the Senate, and he's out there uh, uh, making a lot of noise. I mean, he's really out there communicating the need for a public option, the need for health care reform. And then, uh, and then you have on the other side Senator Cole, and I just saw some of his latest press releases, and it was about uh, t uh, cigarette smuggling, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was. Uh, Nothing registering about uh, that. So, I mean, again, we have two very long-serving senators that presumably have a lot of influence in the crafting of this policy, and one uh, very engaged, and the other one who's communicating to his constituents uh, about topics that have very little to do with health care, public option, or anything else like that. Save uh, a few meetings at some of the, uh, the local senior gatherings. Yes, yes. So then when we, um, just to kind of wrap up here, I think that we've, we've, uh, we've highlighted just a little bit about uh, the debate that's ongoing. Um, one thing that I'd like to encourage everybody to examine is the role that abortion is playing in this health care debate, and we don't have the time to, unfortunately, uh, discuss that some more. But uh, with the d ongoing debate of the public option, I think it's important that we all uh, try to stay as informed as possible on this topic and contribute to the ongoing dialogue. And I want to thank my co-host, Dad, otherwise known as uh, David Smith, and uh, thank you very much for listening to this evening's Dialectica. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, 
or KVRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KVRX Austin.